So here's what we're going to. The first thing is the gospel message, six hinges of history. And, and if you notice, there's six things all starting with A, mostly because I'm a pastor and that's how I roll. But I want to start out with this section of scripture to read to you. And I just want you to hear this. So I want you to close your eyes and just focus with me, all right? Because we're all coming from all different places. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then for the Gentile. You can open your eyes. That right there is a statement of somebody who is confident and knows and knows the message that they are bringing forth. The confident word of somebody who understands what they have seen, what they have been taught, and what they know in relationship with the living God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So let's start with this. Let's talk about sand and stars, all right? So you got sand. Think of sand, little particles of sand, okay? And then you look up in the night sky and you see the stars, sometimes when our haze isn't too bad, right? Now, I want you at your table to just figure out how many of you think there's more stars or there's more sand. Grains of sand or individual stars. How many is more? Ready? Go. Okay, so at your table, just raise your hand if you said stars. Okay? Very nice. If you said sand, let's see your hands. If you were afraid to answer, no, I'm just kidding. So here's, here's where we start. Look at this. So sand, let's just picture this. One cubic centimeter, about the size of a sugar cube, okay? Um, there's 8,000 grains of sand that can fit into that size. And then you take a beach, like a volleyball court, with 20-inch deep sand, and you get more than half a trillion grains of sand on that court. Then you take a big beach, a couple miles long and 75 yards wide, and, a, and with room for a 1,000 volleyball courts side by side, and you'd get an estimated 512 trillion grains of sand on average. Or... Five followed by 14 zeros. Okay? So that's a little math for you. I did not do this math. I received this from somebody else who's way smarter than me. Now, compare the number of stars to the known physical in the known physical universe. A study suggests that there's a mind-blowing, listen to this, 300 sextillion stars. Three times as many as scientists had previously calculated. That's a three followed by 23 zeros. Not even a million beaches covered with a thousand volleyball courts each would come close in comparison. The stars win the challenge hands down. Right? Yay for you. Now, who is responsible for the dazzling physical universe that we can touch and and we can see? It's God, the almighty God, the gracious heavenly father created created all that we know. In scripture, it says, for by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things were created by him, for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And the him that they're referring to is Christ. 
Now, we sometimes like the idea of we have this big, mighty, powerful God, but we don't allow our brains to get totally boggled when we consider the enormity, the immensity, the the power, and the majesty of Almighty God. And many times what we do is when we think of Christ, we put Christ as a little lower than God, as, as kind of God in, in, in a box. And he came and he was contained here and he just wanted to get out. But what I would uh, throw back at you with this is if you're looking at Colossians and you're looking at John and you're reading the scriptures, what you will find out and what you will realize is that Christ is God. There's a triune God that we serve. And when we talk about the power of God, we are also talking about the work of Christ. And when we consider the enormity of this amazing planet and all these things that we have been given, we also have to consider that Jesus also, Jesus also, in him, through him, all things were created. And one of the things that we want to do is we want to kind of take a look not kind of take a look, we will take a look, at, at this, this God with this supernatural, invisible, big picture understanding. But here's why. The spiritual realm, the invisible parts, all of those things work together to declare the majesty of the Almighty God. And that's why the writers, the apostles, the teachers throughout centuries have been willing to give their very lives to stand and proclaim that I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because Christ, the work that he did on the cross, the, the work that he did while he was here is everything. The recovery of the gospel is foundational to our society's revival and reformation. That was a quote I found. Now, hear that. The recovery of the gospel is foundational to our society's revival and reformation. Every church, every person needs to be gripped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The central theme that's 82 times found in the gospels. God wanted to communicate this to his whole creation. He's done it supremely through his son. And Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through him, whom he has made the universe. And so we want to engage the six elements of the gospel story that we can take from the life of Christ. And you'll note in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, this is just going to walk through the message that Peter proclaimed and people's hearts were stirred. And the first hinge of the gospel is the life of Jesus. And your fill-in is accredited. The life of Jesus gave credit to what was happening The life of Jesus was gripping and powerful. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2 says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by by God, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. Jesus' incarnation preceded the crowds coming to him. And this sets our missional ministry pattern. When we see Jesus, it sets the pattern 
for everything that is to come. When he says go, he's going to live his life into that. His very life gave credit to the things that he was saying. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He has seen his glory, the glory of the one, the only who came from the Father. All disciples of Jesus get apprenticed into the kingdom proclamation and demonstration by understanding the healings that Jesus did, the deliverance, the empowering authority ministry that he gave to his people. We can understand the walk and what it looks like by observing Christ. The other thing that we find is is the church is called to leadership multiplication strategies and personal stewardship, and Jesus was living example of what that looked like. He didn't just say fill up and drink and enjoy. He said go and be because faith does, because love does, because Christ says do and be. And as we move on, then we see the death of Jesus, the atonement. The death of Jesus, atonement. That's the second one. And in the atonement, we look at at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. That was the second thing that Peter proclaimed to the people. Not only did his life bring accreditation, but his death brought atonement. And that was the second hinge that, that he proclaimed. Every human being now stands before a holy God in desperate need of forgiveness of sins. And Jesus was the atonement for that sin. Jesus has reconciled a new humanity through his blood to God. The cross brings victory that we may triumph over rebellious, angelic powers and principalities that have given, been given power on this earth. But through Jesus, we have victory. Because at the mention of his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. At the mention of his name, every evil, horrific uh, place and, and spirit must flee. That's why, as a pastor, I tell kids, don't worry about demons. You've got Jesus. You don't have to worry about, oh, are they going to get me? No, you proclaim the name of Jesus, everything must flee. Because of the atonement, he bought us back. And then the third hinge, the resurrection of Jesus, brought authentication. So remember, we have accreditation, atonement, and then authentication. Acts 22, or 2, verses 24 through 32, and, and I pulled some portions of it. It says this, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God ra- has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. If Jesus had been crucified and not risen again, there would be no authentication of the gospel message. But when he arose, it was as if the stamp had been set and God said, yes, this was the plan. Yes, this was it. Now up to this point, it was following good teaching. It was following good way. It was following good pattern. It was following the idea and the concept. But on the resurrection, there was an authentication that hit the supernatural 
bodily resurrection of Jesus vindicates the atonement as fully accepted by God. It establishes a visible pattern for the resurrection of the dead, which we hope for one day. You read the Heidelberg Catechism, praise God, you can get that, right? You read uh, our, our statement of faith that I believe that we will one day rise and sit with the King of glory in worship and in praise. The gospel message. The resurrection was an authentication, the evidence to the truth of the supremacy of Christ and Christianity. Remember, to this point, Christianity, a following of God, God's people was relegated to a tribal group. It was, it was relegated to just a small portion. But on his resurrection, it opened everything up. And not only did it authenticate it, but it brought an authority. It brought an authority that said this is the one true way. And that's what number four looks like. Jesus' ascension brings authority. Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 34. It says this, Exalted to the right hand of God, he was received from the Father and promised, Holy Spirit has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Peter was proclaiming that the risen, the ascended Jesus had all authority. That the ascended God had all authority. Our redeemed humanity is represented pre permanently in heaven because of Christ. Jesus' legitimate claim on every square inch of creation is made in that ascension. This is mine. I am above it. And you will also see me in it and through it and about it. You are mine. Jesus continues his ministry from heaven to this day, distributing ascension gifts to his church. And what we find then is that Peter helps us understand number five, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit through Jesus is ability. We have to understand that he didn't just leave us to find our own way. In fact, in the text, what you'll find is that it says, uh, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. The Holy Spirit gives us ability. God knew, Christ knew, we would not be okay. We would not be able in the authority of our own hearts and our own desires to be able to just proclaim Jesus and to live against the tide of this world. And so he gave us the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is active the Holy Spirit is indwelled in all born-again saints through the third person of the Trinity. 
The Holy Spirit continues to form Christ-like character and competencies within us. The Holy Spirit's role, and we'll talk about this in the next portion, is to lead us and to give us wisdom and to give us insight and to give us authority and confidence to go places we would not naturally be found. Number six, second coming of Jesus is accountability. Peter goes into this in Acts chapter 2, verse 20. And also there's in Romans 2.16, it says, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this day whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. The second coming of Christ reminds us of a final judgment for all humanity by Jesus it reminds us of the resurrected bodies of all the saints and the, per, the permanence of the punishment for the wicked. There will be an accounting. And that's, that's a gospel message that not a lot of people like to hear, especially in churches where you've been in church since you were a little kid and, and everything's all good. We just like to be ushered into the next phase of our life. You know, you've made a lot of mistakes. You'll get to this place. You'll move to that place. But we have to understand that through Christ and through his work on the cross and through the second coming promise of Christ, we also have a very harsh reality a very harsh reality of impending judgment for those who do not call in the name of Jesus and surrender and submit to him. We have accountability through the gospel message. Jesus reveals the heart of God. He reveals the person of God. The incarnation of Jesus changes history's direction. And it is our call to let the gospel message be proclaimed. And so when you look back into your notes and you see the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the second coming of Jesus, when you recognize those elements of the gospel, there is a fullness and a completeness to the message that brings life. The word gospel translates to news that brings joy. But this isn't just any news. A gospel is news that changes a life forever. After being invaded and enslaved by Persia, Greece won two decisive battles at Marathon and Solnus. The Greeks sent out heralds, also called evangelists, to proclaim the good news to the cities. We have fought for you. We have won. And now you're no longer slaves. You're free. The reality is that we are all slaves, slaves to sin and slaves to death. We are slaves in need of good news. Enter Jesus, God's Son, fully God, fully man, bringing news that would change our lives forever. His news was this, I am the divine, come to you to do what you could not do for yourself. I will take what you deserve so you can have what I deserve. You have no idea how much it will cost me, but you also cannot imagine the depths of my love for you. It is a gift that I give freely. 
So repent. Repent from all the ways you've run from me and follow me. Follow me because I am the only way to eternal life. Follow me because I'm the Savior you've been looking for. Follow me because I have authority over everything, yet I have humbled myself for you. Follow me because I died on a cross for you, because I'm your true love and your true life. This is my good news for you. This is my gospel, that you have been saved by grace and that you are slaves no more. Does that sound like good news? You are slaves no more. Like, we could just be done right there, right? You've been saved by grace. Let's, let's let it be done. The truth of it is, as we move on, as we look at what God has to say to us, there are some specific things that God did through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a specific work that has been done that, that is a part of the narrative of Scripture that starts with covenant. And so in your notes, you're going to see this section that says covenant is. Covenant is. And so I just want to run through a few things with you, and then we're going to send you to your small groups. Okay, I'm mindful of the time, so we're watching it here. And here's how it goes, the very beginning. When the Bible speaks of God's covenant with his people, it's explaining how our relationship with God is made by his provision and exists by his terms. Very, very important that we understand that this is nothing to do with our terms and our way of understanding. This is exclusively by his provision and by his terms. It says, so God made a covenant. Very, very important to understand. So all power and all authority rests with who? You, you can answer. It's like Sunday school. God, right? Through Jesus, all authority and all power. And through covenant, we enjoy relationship with him. There's a lot of things we get from the covenant relationship with God. We enjoy a strong relationship with God. We enjoy protection from Satan and our enemy. How many of you in here are married? Okay. The marriage relationship is a reflection of Christ's work And the reflection of the story of the gospel in our lives. Part of what you do when a husband and wife get married is you come into a union, a covenantal relationship. One of the key roles that that we call men to is to protect. To protect and to lead their homes. And it's very important that we understand that the covenant relationship with us built through Christ is that of protection from Satan, our enemy, as well as peace with God. Sometimes we just think it's the peace with God portion or the community with God portion or a material provision portion and we forget that there's a protection that comes through covenant covenant also brings a a coming and perfect kingdom as our home where Jesus will forever rule over all as our gracious covenant king. That's covenant. There's a hint of surrender there. I'm going to just tell you a quick little aside. I cried on my wedding day. Shocker. Shocker. I know. 
I watched as my wife made her way down the aisle on the day of our wedding. And as I was watching her come down, one, I was just like, she was there, right? It was beautiful. It was awesome. She was decked out like incredible. Every bit of her was prepared, and it hit me. She was prepared for me. Whoa. And then it hit me even further that this man who was walking her down the aisle was going to hand her over to me. And all of a sudden, I had this feeling of, he has no idea that I have no idea. (laughs) All the time in my life, I am a confident son of a gun, right? I am a confident dude. Yes, I can be married. Everybody loves me. You know, we're doing our thing. I bought her the smallest ring I could possibly afford, right? And and I got all this stuff and I, I did the very best that I could. And on that day when she came down as my bride, it hit me. Like, Nobody had warned me that this man was going to be giving his daughter to me and I was going to have this moment of peril, this moment of, right? So I'm standing in the athletic stance, you know, don't put your legs together, you might pass out, right? I'm I'm prepared and as I'm watching, it just overwhelms me and not just that moment between my bride and I. But that moment where I realized that Cindy was submitting to me and her dad was handing her over to me to lead and to guide, it was the reflection, too, of me saying, okay, so God, I surrender to the work of Jesus Christ. I can't do it. I can't figure it out. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to be your bride. Take me. That's the gospel message. In covenant with God, there is no bargaining, bargaining, bartering, or contract negotiations. Let's be clear on that. There is no barter, bar, I can't say it. I took, put two B's together and I can't get them out. Bargaining, bartering, or contract negotiations. It's on his terms, in his way, and so we must lay down and submit to him. I'm going to ask you to refer to your Bible study. There's a portion where it talks about the cutting of the covenant. Genesis 15. It begins in chapter 12. If you can spend the time reading through it, it's a very, very powerful portion of Scripture. But Genesis 15 is specifically talking about what it looked like when Abraham cut animals apart, separated them, and then walked through them as a symbolic cutting of covenant. It's a deep section of scripture that takes us to an image that is beyond our own comprehension sometimes. The thing I put in your notes is we receive the covenant by faith. And the reason we put that story, that large section of scripture about Abraham, because in scripture it says Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness to him. And that story of Abraham and his faith was also the story of him receiving the covering and cutting a covenant with God that says, yes, on your terms, I will be here. The practical application and understanding of covenant, there's so much in our world today. In the law, there is so much about covenant. 
When you get to property ownership and management and those kind of things, there's, so, there's covenantal agreements. I mean, if you just Google covenant, it's going to come up with tons more about law than it is going to come up with anything about the Bible. So today we live in covenant. We've got things that express covenant. And, and I would encourage you, take a look. See what's out there that expresses that covenant relationship. And, and the thing that I want to draw us to and the way I want to close up this section today is that the modern church expression of covenant is found in baptism. That's what we do. If you ever wondered what that looks like and how that plays out in the church, baptism is our picture and expression of covenant. And so when we baptize, there is a, an agreement that is made and coming under the covering and a submission to the authority of God. If you look at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, I don't know if anybody has a Bible out at the moment. I'd love to just hear the word read if there's a way we can get to it real quick. Somebody who's a good reader. That was never me in high school. Okay, Jamie, crank it out. Here we go. When we hear the gospel message and we understand the covenant that God wants us to enter into, in the message that we read about, okay, so all that whole six hinges of history were, were focused out of that first sermon from Peter. I want to be very clear with that. Read Acts chapter 2 and you're going to see the six hinges. You're going to recognize that's what we went through. But even more importantly, as we look, there is a response that's required. So we don't just go about sharing the gospel message, Jesus is the king, Jesus is the king, and flippantly throw it out there, hoping that maybe somebody, when they go home, might, might respond to it or, you know, genuflect a few enough times and, and get to the right place. No, what we hope is that there will be a response that somebody, when hearing the gospel message of Jesus Christ, would say, my heart is burning within me. How can I respond? How can I respond? And so we want to equip you with this. You, you call for repentance is the first thing. There has to be a repentance. How do we repent? Repentance is the submission of our will and the recognition of our wrong laid before God and covered by his son. So you and I, first of all, have to recognize that we're not right. And we have to say, God, you are right. And in your sight, when the light is upon me, I recognize there is darkness in my heart and I repent. I am sorry. I give up. I surrender. I lay down. Whatever picture of repentance you want to see, it's that picture of full submission to a perfect and almighty God. How we repent is by turning from our sin, recognizing our sin, and willfully choosing and declaring that I turn from my sin. Romans clearly dis displays this for us uh, in chapter 10 where it says, you must believe it in your heart and confess it 
with your mouth. Repentance is a decision that results in a change of mind that returns and leads to a change of purpose and a change of action. And secondly, baptism is the sign of a covenant. So why do we use baptism as this? There was the cutting of a covenant. Then there went to a place where Abraham was instructed that every male child born uh, into the children of Israel all throughout must be circumcised. And for this group, that's not a happy topic, right? Or men, right? But the big picture of this was there must be something symbolically. There must be something physically that is done that you understand that a covenant has been made and cleared. And baptism is that sign. So here's what I will tell you. In your books, there's a study on baptism. There's a study on the work of water and baptism, And at this church, we have two different methods of doing that. We have infant baptism and we have adult baptism. And if you are one who flows in the stream of, I don't do the infant baptism thing, we make room. And there's adult baptism. Now, do we have a reason why we do infant baptism? Yes. Is it the only thing, the only way? No. And I want to be very clear with that. The Reformed Church in America is very open about that. We we are a people who don't necessarily fully agree on every term on how that goes, but we do with our conviction through the word of God come together to his table and say, it is important to have the work of the water when it comes to covenant. So there's a study in your scripture and your teachers have been given even a leader's guide to how to understand baptism, baptism a little bit more and, and your table leaders, they've been given a little extra supplement in their materials And that's a big piece of what it is. So there are people, when we lead people to Christ, the order is they repent, they are baptized, and then we go to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us strength and wisdom. And I want to lead you to a conclusion at this point. We believe that the Holy Spirit is given to us, imparted to us at salvation. We believe that at salvation, the Holy Spirit begins a work of regenerating our hearts. That's how it's done. It's not because I say, God, I want to change, I want to change, I want to change, I want to change, and so, boom, there it is. No, there comes a a heart submission that says, God, through the work of your spirit, I receive your spirit, and I want you to begin a work in my heart that gives me wisdom, that, that begins to speak to me through the word, I don't know if you've ever read a section of Scripture, certainly not you guys, but you've read a section of Scripture and ended kind of going, huh? What? I loved when I would read Paul, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do, and I don't want to do, and at the end of it, my mind would just be blown. And sometimes we get to Scripture, and it's very like, oh, how does this all work out? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. When we say, God, we submit to your word. Would your Holy Spirit... Begin to explain this to me. Begin to reveal to me what this means so that I might work it out in authority on this earth. And the Holy Spirit gives us a strength and a confidence and a wisdom that then leads us into life. And so what we do is we come and we proclaim the gospel message. And hopefully we then say, would you like to respond to the covenant relationship that God is offering you. 
And when people do that, we can pray a prayer of submission and a prayer of acceptance of the gift of Jesus Christ that was once done on the cross and totally finished for us all. And when we pray with them, we must lead people to the waters of baptism. If they have not been baptized previously, there are a lot of people that have been baptized as infants and and have a moment where they make cognitive recognition of the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And what we do with those people here is we ask them to make a profession of faith. Very important. And finally, we ask and lead people through discipleship into a submission to the work of the Holy Spirit power in their life. And that is how we find ourselves in the story. The work of Jesus Christ, the gospel message for all who would believe. I love the section of scripture when it talks about Jesus walking on the road after they had been, uh, after he'd been crucified and raised again. And he walks up and there's guys talking about what had just happened. And and he begins to tell them through all the prophets and go through all the stuff that they already know. And their conversation, when he finally is taken apart from them, they said, did not our hearts burn within us? The truth is, when we proclaim the gospel message, when we think of and we meditate on the gospel, our hearts should burn within us and lead us to action. In Jesus' name, amen.